October 16th. With Sonia really everything I remember her as being, nostalgia plays shadow puppet tricks on the mind. She looked wan and tired in the winter. Her eyes had a beadiness in candlelight late at night over backgammon and grappa. Her voice squawked like a magpie's. She was a bit of a magpie, Sonia, always looking for glittering objects and secreting them away. Sometimes I miss her in my bones. Knowing her is not the same as loving her, but people have layers like onions and planets, and Sonia's obdurate, complex alien shell cracked to reveal something else entirely, like a crustacean smashed against a rock to free an ermine, something ineffably soft, rare, shy, and tender with a quivering little face. I knew that. I can't forget it. But I'm loath to believe it, nostalgia being the trickster god it is, the Loki of the emotions. <clears throat> I must have been born under the sign of that trickster god and have been ruled all my life by nothing more than his whims and illusions, his mischief. Maybe it's not only me. My generation is a sudden tail end of the boom dip on the population explosion graph, the unprepossessing trough characterized only by a shared generalized nostalgia for some America that almost but never quite existed. I envision us as a tiny tribe of isolates scattered around the coasts, clinging to the edges like aliens yearning for some golden, decadent, hot-browed era of martinis and Louis Prima and Harlem Midnight Suppers, apothecaries selling morphine-laced beverages, wooden dice rolling on deep green bays, that zingy old New York pulse and fizzle, sad gas stations out west we drive up to in our roadsters and Thunderbird convertibles to refill our tanks for 15 cents a gallon and move on from, leave behind in red dust, shell sign flapping in hot wind on our way to Palm Springs to shack up in some turquoise geometric motel with intergalactic decor and a butterfly-shaped pool, drinking gin and fresh orange juice and smoking luckies and solving murders and eating ham sandwiches at 3 a.m., we live in our own romance stories, detective novels, noir films, all that jazz. Kate Christensen is the author. Kate Christensen is the author of In the Drink and Jeremy Thane. Her latest novel is titled The Epicure's Lament, and it's the story of Hugo Whittier, a literate curmudgeonly hermit. Welcome to the show, Kate. Thank you. Kate, tell us a little bit about writing as a man in your latest novel, you decide to take on a male voice. What made you do that? Well, first of all, um, I, didn't, I didn't choose Hugo. <laughs> Hugo chose me. Um, and I was writing another novel entirely. I was, writing, I was writing the story of Hugo's brother, Dennis, who's much more conventional than he is and, and quote-unquote nice, and his wife, Marie. Um, and I was writing about how their marriage came apart. And that was the novel I set out to write. And I intended it to be a sort of middle march of the Hudson Valley. Um, these nice people, and, and I wanted to write about an entire community and, and different strata um, and subsets of, of people living in the Hudson Valley. I wanted to move outside of New York, and I know the Hudson Valley from uh, my stepfather who, who lived there, and so I spent vacations there in college. And I'd envisioned this novel, I called it Out of Town, so I was referring to New York because um, New York, of course, is what I really like to write about. Um, and I was writing this novel and getting so bored writing about Dennis and Marie and their au pair girl, and um, I began it after September 11th, and I thought it was therapeutic or something, or, or, or you know, it would comfort me to write this novel about I was sad and they were sad, and September 11th was devastating. And um, meanwhile, I was getting more and more bored because I was angry more than I was sad. And Hugo came gimping up the walk of Marie's house, 
following Dennis, or ahead of Dennis, actually, and all of a sudden, for the first time in a long time, I perked up, and I started feeling interested in Hugo, and I felt like immediately, I knew Hugo, I knew him, he, he, maybe he's my id, I don't know, he's some extension of, <laughs> he, he can say and do things that I can't say and do in my life, um, if that makes sense. Hugo and this novel have some interesting literary antecedents. Michelle de Montaigne and M.F.K. Fisher. Could you talk about each of them? Let's talk about Montaigne first. He was a French Renaissance thinker who took himself as the object of his own studies. And it was interesting to me. Um, Hugo, again, because Hugo chose me to, 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 <laughs> to channel him, to allow him to tell his story. Hugo read Montaigne. I didn't know Montaigne. I had studied him in college, but I hadn't read him since then, and I sort of remembered that he was dense and peculiar, but I remembered nothing at all about him. And I also remembered that he was good company to read, that he was very, he made, he's very sensible. And, and MFK Fisher, too, is good company, and I feel like they are Hugo's compatriots in a way. Like, he doesn't have a lot of friends. He's a hermit. He has no friends on purpose. And these are the people he reads. Um, Montaigne was a hermit also. He lived in a tower on his family's property, like Hugo, and I didn't know that when I started the book. Um, and Hugo sort of forced me to read Montaigne again and learn about him again. And he was um, he had very interesting ideas about death and suicide, like Hugo, and um, that sort of correspond with Hugo's ideas. He was pro-suicide. He thought it was the most beautiful death. Is, he said, the most beautiful death is the one that is most willed. <laughs> <laughs> which I think I think is that, that sort of Hugo's driving motto through the book. Now, how does M.F.K. Fisher play into the novel? Well, I love M.F.K. Fisher, so I foisted her on Hugo. Um, I think that I think that um, M.F.K. Fisher is like the anti-Hugo. She's I think his feelings toward her are that he envies her and has a crush on her at the same time, and she was someone who enjoyed life to the fullest. And her husband died of Berger's disease, which is the same disease that Hugo has. And while her husband was dying of Berger's disease, she was a pretty young woman, and he was the love of her life. And, <clears throat> excuse me, he was smoking himself to death and in a lot of pain. And she had to watch this happen. She had to watch her husband smoke himself to death. And, you know, she was a great food writer. Um, and she wrote Consider the Oyster during this time while her husband was dying of Berger's disease. And it's an incredibly passionate book. It's, it's a book about, you know, love of life. And I feel like that was almost her answer to, to her husband's willful death um, from Berger's disease. And so she really ties in with Hugo, I think, profoundly in a way, um, his feelings for her, his feelings about food and hers. Um, she obviously wasn't obsessed with decay and rot like Hugo. Um, but the, the cheerier side of Hugo's food obsession, <laughs> the sort of enjoyment of food and the comfort he finds in food and the way that he uses food to kind of connect because he doesn't really know how. So he cooks for people. Um, that's very, very um, inspired by M.F.K. Fisher. So I can see that they would both resonate with Hugo, that they're both sort of his friends, I guess. Tell us about creating the voice of Hugo Whittier. It's both, it's very compelling, and it's constantly funny. It's the kind of thing you want to read aloud. Do you conceive it as being read aloud when you write, or do you write it to be read? Um, I, I don't 
I've always felt weird doing readings because I don't write to be read aloud. I write to be read on the page, and it's taking me a long time to learn how to translate that into reading it aloud. But um, I think Hugo, more than my other two novels, works okay when I read it out loud. You know, it's because his voice is so distinctive. It's so him. I mean, I don't mean that. Like, Hugo's voice just came out of the ether to me immediately when I was trying to write this other novel. He had to write a diary. I had to let him. He put the date on the page, not me. And I really felt like he lived in my head, that this was a voice that took me over and um, compelled me to get back to work every day at a time that was very dark and very hard to be in New York. And he took me up the Hudson River and put me in this old ruined house on the Hudson and in this mind of of this strange man who isn't me at all. And um, his voice kind of came. It just, it just sort of came to me immediately. I mean, I, I felt like the moment he started, the moment he forced me to write about him, the moment he forced me to let him take over this other nice novel I was writing, um, his voice sort of, I mean, I think that the node that I'm connected to Hugo is anger. And I think that I was outraged at that time. And I still am um, in a political way, but I don't have a political personality. And so I was instead taken over by Hugo, who also isn't political. In fact, it's not at all a political novel, but it does take place after September 11th. And I think that Hugo's sense of outrage sort of permeates every nuance of his voice. There's a kind of self-loathing outrage that he, even even his thoughts about nostalgia, even his thoughts about why he hates young men with facial hair, um, it's a kind of rebellion against contemporary life that I actually... <laughs> relate to. <laughs> Could you tell us about writing from a male point of view? Did you vet these thoughts that you put down to paper with the men in your life or your editor, or did they just come in out this way first time? First time came out this way. But this is, this is because I was taken over. I mean, this is, I'm obviously not a man. And um, I'm very different from Hugo. I live a very different kind of life. I'm not a hermit, although I try to be when I'm writing a novel, but it never works. Um, I feel like there, there are things that Hugo can say that I can't say and things he does that I can't do. So in a way, he, he is an extension of me, a vicarious extension. Um, and, you know, there's part of me that always wished I were a man. Um, in some in some ways, I think that men don't have to be as nice as women and men don't have to smile as much. And um, it doesn't seem as strange when men act weird or are angry or are antisocial and or are extreme um, or, you know, say and do outrageous things, which all of which Hugo arguably does. Um, and there's a part of me that wishes I could, but I don't. And I bend over backwards not to offend people in my life. And so he's almost the anti-me in a way, you know, but he's allowing me to live this life that I, th I think a lot of novelists write novels that allow them to live a life or inhabit a mind and a psyche that they can't in their real lives. It's almost like a parallel life running alongside your own um, in which you can act out certain things that you can't do in your real life, <laughs> take on different personas. <laughs> Tell us about the anger that you felt that ch you channel into Hugo's anger and how you sublimate that and bring it out apolitically. It's interesting because the the po political implications are there in the background, but they're subdued. Tell us about that. 
I think that it's not something that I've articulated for myself. So that's a very good question. And I'm not sure that I'm going to be able to answer it, but I'll try. Um, September 11th hit me very hard because I'd worked in the World Trade Center for two years. On the 50th floor, I was a secretary to a legal department of a subsidiary of a Japanese bank that did swaps and derivatives. But all five of us in the department were romantics, and we didn't take our work very seriously. And in the afternoon, we would look at sailboats in New York Harbor. And this was in the mid-'90s, so it was after the first bombing and well before the attacks. And it was two years during which things were going really well for me, so it was a golden time. So when the towers fell, not only was the city I love attacked, and not only did the whole tenor of daily life change there, but it, was, it symbolized the end of youth for me. It was really, <clears throat> in a personal way, um, the end of my youth. I was 39, and it had been a golden time leading up to that, and a lot changed in this country and in New York, but also in the whole country and in the world after September 11th and with the Bush administration. And I think my outrage was tinged with a kind of sadness and also helplessness. I felt, what can I do? I don't know. I really don't. I don't know where to put this. And, I, and it manifested itself as deep depression until Hugo took me over and he pulled me out and... Um, so I feel like, yeah, I mean, the political stuff is very much in the background in this novel. It's, it's, the September 11th is sort of just this little drumbeat far off in the hills um, throughout the novel. But um, it's set directly afterwards. And then characters every now and then have the cliched conversations like chickens coming home to roost. And, you know, they say all the things that people were saying at the time and feeling really deeply, but that are really cl cliched and that... Um, and that polarized people, like the married couple at Marie's dinner party, um, Stephanie and Bunn, when they talk about it. Um, and Hugo sits there and says, there were a lot of things I could say, but I chose to say none of them, because he is avowedly apolitical. He's removed himself from the whole human, the ho uh, from all human, or tried to remove himself from all human commerce. But I feel that if there's anything political in the novel, if there's any kind of political outrage, that's where I put it. I just, I took myself out of it in the form of Hugo. I just removed myself. I just rejected all of it and said, to hell with it. I'm going to write about someone outside of all this and, and um, someone who's, who's rejected it completely and lives a life who wears his hair in a 1960s haircut and listens to Swing and Big Band and Benny Goodman and has a victory garden. There's a simmering outrage in Hugo continuously, and yet also, as you mentioned, a nostalgia. Could you talk about how you play those polar opposites and use them to create tension within the novel to move the novel forward? I hope that I did that. I hope that worked. And because, again, I, I mean, I feel like I knew Hugo when he first came into that other novel as a person of anger and appetite. And I feel like the whole theme of sex and death and food, though it's also intertwined, and his whole morbid obsession with, with rot, um, letting his house fall down, letting his body fall apart, his obsession with the medieval sort of garum and, and the way they would hang the pheasant upside down until the guts deliquesced through the beak, and then they would pluck it and eat it when it was, a, when it was high, they called it. Um, 
Tell us about Garum. <laughs> this is something we have to know. Tell us all about Garum. Well, Garum, oh, Garum was a Roman delicacy, and it was it was extremely expensive, and it, it um, played a huge part in the economy of, of ancient Rome. Um, and it was basically fish guts that were put in the sun, and the intestinal, the intestinal enzymes, I think it was, um, um, caused it to liquefy in the sun, and then it was mixed with herbs. And this is simplifying it wildly. I could the recipe is in the novel for garum, and um, and then it was left in the sun some more, and left to rot, and then bottled, and it was apparently delicious. And there's actually a restaurant in Rome that makes garum. Um, called Magna Carta, I think is the name of the restaurant, and they make garum. Um, it's a it's an ancient ancient food restaurant, and I'm very curious to go there. But garum is, is Hugo's sort of it's a metaphor for him for the for the state his state of mind. He calls it, he calls when he gets in a fugue state he calls it his garum mood, and when when he's when he's depressed or when he's filled with feeling as he frequently is that he has no idea what to do with because Hugo. Um, one of his qualities is that he has no, he has really very little self-knowledge and um, thinks he's, thinks he knows things that he doesn't know. Um, so his garum mood comes over him and then he sees the world through kind of a jaundiced gel. Tell us about writing about food and how that plays into this novel and your drawing on the history of writing about food as well. Yeah, Hugo seems to have a kind of a kind of relationship with food that it's it's kind of a passion i guess in as much as hugo has passions um i love food and i've always been obsessed with food and i've never i've never um been a foodie per se i i'm not educated about food but um i just remember as a kid my mother would make farmers fritters from the joy of cooking which were um cottage cheese pancakes and i remember eating about 30 or 35 of them so i was kind of a gourmand um but just that taste the thin sour taste of the cottage cheese and the crisp pancake um because they were very thin and she would fry them in vegetable oil because it was the 70s and with syrup and we'd have them for supper it would be farmer fritter night and to me, that's the kind of memory that that just brings back a whole flood. I think this is why I relate to MFK Fisher and why why Hugo does too, because I think Hugo and I are like in this too. That when he writes about making nettle soup, it's it's a kind of it's at the end of his life. He's about to commit suicide, and he's thinking about nettle soup. And he's standing looking out at the kitchen garden in the house that he grew up in, where he was fed horrible food by his mother, who deprived him of all sensual pleasure um, and used him for her own. And he's looking out at the garden and thinking about making nettle soup. And he gets this kind of swoon of memory of, it's almost like Proust's Madeleine, but, but, but different because it's, it's tinged with bitterness and, and bile, as is everything he thinks about and all his memories. Um, so I think that for him it's a kind of, it's his identity. I think he, he identifies himself through food as his history and his emotional life. Could you tell us a little bit about the unpleasant cast of characters in this novel? <laughs> I don't think there's anybody in this novel that you'd want to know except for perhaps Hugo, and even then... You wouldn't really want to know him. You wouldn't want to sit next to him on a bus. Come on. Thank you. I'm glad, I'm glad you see that. They're all, they're all pretty horrible, and they're all, they're all selfish, and none of them are victims. They all have their own agenda. They all want what they want, and they're all very frank about it. Everyone in the novel, even Bellatrix, the little girl, um, 
she in the end turns out to be, you know, not so different from everyone else. And um, I found it very comforting to write about people like that at such a time when so many people were feeling like victims and like, um, you know, like helpless. And I, I was feeling helpless and I was feeling um, a sense of, you know, enervation and depression. And meanwhile, here were these people, um, you know, occupying my head and, and um, all of them, all of them hungry, all of them wanting something from each other, all of them manipulating each other. And it, it entertained me. That's about all I can say about it. This novel really does have the feeling of a writer trying to entertain herself. <laughs> <laughs> It, it's quite exciting in in that. Could you tell us a little bit too about the East Coast settings here? It, you're clearly enamored of New York and clearly enamored of your Hudson Valley. Tell us about how that plays into the novel. I grew up. I was born in Berkeley. I grew up in Berkeley until I was eight, and then we moved to Arizona, where I finished my childhood. So I'm from the West. I'm not. I'm not from the East Coast. And I was very bookish. And Arizona was a very alienating place for someone like me who had glasses and didn't do well at sports. And I read 19th century novels, and I read novels about New York. I read Edith Wharton, and I fell in love with New York. And I remember sitting in Arizona in our swamp-cooled cinder block house and thinking, when I grow up, I can move to New York. And there was that Edna St. Vincent Millay poem, we were very tired, we were very merry, we had gone back out and forth all night on the ferry. And I remember thinking, okay, that's my plan, that's exactly what I want to do when I grow up. So my romance with New York dates way, way back um, to the 70s when I was sitting there with little women on my knees and, you know, dreaming of my adulthood. And so um, the Hudson Valley came later when my mother married my stepfather, Ben Lafarge, who is a professor at Bard College and lives in Barrytown, New York. And so that is where I went on vacation in college and after. And I sort of fell in love in a strange way with the Hudson River and the Hudson Valley, uh, the Hudson River Valley, because it's a very interesting place. It's like nowhere else I've ever been. It's, it's a kind of, it's a kind of um, enclave of its own. It's very near New York City, but very far, very separate. There are a lot of old families with mansions on the river, and it's very cultured. A lot of writers and a lot of sort of famous people live in the Hudson River Valley. But then there are these depressed little towns with these sad antique stores and these, you know, like stu like the Stewarts in my novel, the family-run Stewarts franchise, where, you know, it's, it's like the townies and um, who are struggling really hard to make a living and um, the economy, you know, was really bad during that time, too. There was a kind of recession. And um, I just remember Hudson, New York, like the diner there, um, and how hard the waitress seemed to be working and, you know, wondering what her, her life was like. And it sort of fired my imagination, both ends of the spectrum, the aristocracy and also just the town people. This novel has a sort of timeless feel to it as well. It seems like it could be set anywhere from 1900 almost to, to the present, because of the way that it's just the pure interaction of the characters. Was that deliberate? Were you trying to take it out of time? I wasn't, I, I don't think it was deliberate. I, I think that it just happened that way because I needed to take it out of time, because I needed to take myself out of what was going on, and it was my way of escaping. And also, could you tell us a little bit about some of your previous novels? Uh, let's talk about In the Drink. In the Drink is a story of a 29-year-old woman who drinks too much, um, hence the title, who has a job working as a 
ghostwriter and personal secretary for a dragon lady on the Upper East Side um, named Jackie Del Castellano, who came by her name by virtue of her marriage. She was a girl from New Jersey, actually. Um, and um, the, the protagonist, if I can call her that, Claudia, um, her life gets increasingly sort of out of control through the novel. She drinks more and more, and she's in love with her best friend, and um, who may or may not be gay. And her job just gets worse and worse and worse. She keeps screwing up and getting in trouble, and her, her, her boss is a nightmare. And she narrates the book, and so the book rise and fa- rises and falls on her voice. Um, and, and black humor. I mean, she sort of survives by, by being self-deprecating and angry. Again, anger fuels this novel. It's a job that I myself had, and so I identify pretty closely with Claudia. And her life gets very out of control in a way that mine never did. So again, I'm living vicariously through my protagonist. And moving on to your second novel, <laughs> <laughs> which was seems like a perfect transition between from uh, the first two uh, the Epicure's Lament. Tell us a little bit about Jeremy Thrain. Well, Jeremy Thrain is is also narrated by in in the first person, and it's a gay man. And so I got to inhabit a different kind of person. I mean, a gay man. Um, so I've written about a straight woman, a gay man, and a straight man. Um, all th- all first person novels, and all of them came out of a failed attempt to write a third person omniscient novel, which. Hopefully someday I'll be able to do. Um, Is this the same novel? No. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a different one. A different, a different boring novel every time. That I, that I, I reach page 125 and then one character just takes over. And it's, every time it's, it's sort of somebody, somebody who's not really making it in life, somebody who's a bit of a failure. Tell us a little bit about your writing process. Is it organic? Do you just sit down every day and write? Do you have a plan? Do you outline or I don't I don't outline. It's it's very much gut um sort of gut feeling. That's that's what I trust the most. But as far as sitting down every day goes, I procrastinate and procrastinate. I play endless games of solitaire. I take naps. Um I'll do anything not to write. But I I, I have a I have a room where I where I, I rent a room in this old house in Brooklyn, right near my, my house where I live. And uh I go there and I have to be there at three o'clock. I have to. I have no choice. That's my rule. Otherwise, I'll never write. I'll do anything not to write. But once I start, it's pretty, I guess, organic. Once I actually put my hands, I write directly on the computer. I don't do anything by hand because it's too hard, and I get I get a cramp in my hand. Um, but once I put my hand on the keyboard, it seems to sort of start to flow. It's just getting my hands there. That's the hard part. Could you tell us a little bit about what you're working on now? Nothing. I haven't started a new book. We've been we've been renovating a house. We bought a, we bought a really old, falling down um, house. It was all we could afford, and we renovated it. My husband and I ourselves, and it took a year, and we just finished. So we're exhausted. I haven't started a new novel, but I have a character who's persisting on making herself known. It's this crazy old lady. I don't know what she's going to do or who she is yet. Do you write short, short fiction? No, I can't. We've been speaking with Kate Christensen. Her new novel is The Epicure's Lament. Thank you very much, Kate. Thank you.